I want to jump right into our sermon uh, for today as we continue this series that we've called Better Together. Now, one of the things that we have to be willing to wrestle with today, friends, is that when we talk about relationships, when we talk about being better together in our American Western culture, our independent thinking and independent nature is something that actually comes into direct uh, uh, trouble or conflict with what the Bible describes our relationships are to look like. Let me just explain that real quick. I went to the dictionary and I looked up this word independent or independence, and here is how it was defined. Free from outside control, not depending on another's authority, not depending on another for livelihood or substance, capable of thinking or acting for oneself, not influenced or affected by others, not connected with another or with each other, separate, not depending on something else for strength, effectiveness, freestanding. Now, I want to just, that you may say, hey, that's the political system I love, okay? Great. Let's talk about relationships, though. Let's talk about how that thinking affects our relationships, because think about how the Apostle Paul talks about relationships. Romans 12, 4 through 5. Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. Doesn't that sound like a polar opposite of what I read just a moment ago? Uh, it, one of the definitions for independence was not connected with another or with each other separate, where Paul says that we are to belong to each other. That's pretty strong language. Look at the people around you. For real, do it. We belong to each other. We were created by God for relationships. We were created by God for community. We were hardwired from the beginning by our Lord and Savior when he created us for relationship. In fact, as Paul said, we belong to each other. But here's a reality. Because relationships are so important in our life, relationships are often the place where we have the most conflict in our life too. It's often the place that we talked about last week, that the enemy attacks first. Why? Because they're so important to our life. And so we have this reality. We often have relationship trouble. If you haven't noticed this yet, friends, relationships are not always easy, are they? Anyone have a testimony about that, right? We all do. Relationships are not easy. But you need to understand this. The only people who agree on everything are dead people. If you agree on everything all the time, you are either dead or you're not being honest because God made us all very different. We have different perspectives. We have different ideas. We have different ideals. So in a relationship, there's always going to be tension. There's always going to be friction. It's never, ever going to just work out perfectly where there's no more disagreement. We call that heaven or we call that death. You understand? We're going to always have these problems. So here's what I want to do today. This is incredibly practical today. I laid out last week this kind of big idea, this big heart, this big picture for deepening our relationships together. And here today, I want to be super practical. I want to talk to you about the things that actually make our relationships struggle and then the antidote to those things that help our relationships to be successful, to build our relationships. 
So here's how we're going to do this. We're going to have four points today, and in each of these, you're going to see a problem and the solution. Okay, so here's the first one. The first problem, selfishness destroys relationships, and selflessness builds them. Okay, so that's your first fill in the blank if you're taking notes today. Selfishness destroys relationships, and selflessness builds them. Selfishness destroys relationship. It is the number one enemy to relationship. It is the primary cause of conflict. It is the number one reason for divorce. It is the primary reason for war. It is the primary reason for crime. It has always been selfishness. Listen to how James, um, the apostle, says it in James 4, 1 through 2. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight, wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. See, it's super easy for us to allow selfishness to creep into our relationships. When you first start a new relationship, everyone just think back to those earliest days of dating. If you're married now to your spouse, or maybe you're dating right now, in the very beginning when a relationship first gets started, you're really willing to go the extra mile, right? Maybe the extra 10 miles, right? You're willing to do anything and everything to help that person because you just like them so much. Contrast that to after a few years of marriage, you're now upset at your spouse because they're coughing too loud and it's causing you to miss your television program, right? Can, can you please go in the other room? I'm trying to watch this. We all laugh, but it's the reality of our relationships. If we stop making effort in our relationships, it is so easy for us to slide into selfishness. You may have heard this saying before, but I think it's a really good one to remember. If there was more courting in our marriage, there would be less marriages in court. Okay? There's more courting in our marriage, there'd be less marriages in court. Because we have to continue pursuing our spouse. We have to continue pursuing our loved ones. We have to put work into it. We have to put energy into it. We have to put effort into it. Because, once again, friends, we by nature are selfish. Right? We by nature are selfish. And so many problems in our world come from our selfishness. We don't have to be taught how to be selfish. If you have kids, you understand that from birth, as a survival mechanism, mine is one of the first things we learn, right? And we learn early on about this kind of, my, uh, I call it the, the selfishness trinity of me, myself, and I, right? Survival of the fittest. I got to take care of myself. And we go through life existing in this way. You know what? I hear people say often, this thing about God. They say, you know, if God were real, then why is there so much trouble in the world? But see, here's the problem. That, that never made any sense to me because I know why there's so much evil in the world. I know why there's so many problems in the world. It's because you and I are here. I know the selfishness that exists inside of me. I know the difficulty of my flesh. I know how self-serving that we can be. So the problem that uh, is never, why is there so much evil in this world? The true problem is, why is there any good in this world? 
If we're all self-serving and selfish the way that you know exists inside of us in our capacity, if Darwin was right and it's truly a survival of the fittest uh, world, then why is there good? Why does beauty exist? Why does tenderness and kindness and compassion exist in a world if we're just all out for ourselves? See, I think one of the greatest, uh, one of the greatest proofs that God is who he says he is, is the fact that in our nature, even though we're selfish, God's image is still in us and his goodness and his kindness and his compassion is seen to this day in the world in which we live. You may say, well, why does so much bad happen? I say, why does good happen? Because the truth is, I know what's inside of me. You know, companies have figured this out. Corporations have discovered that they can make a lot of money off of our selfishness. In fact, just look at advertising. Just look at how they sell things to the public. Just do it. Why wait? Obey your thirst. No boundaries. Have an urge. In other words, your basic desires are all good and you should obey them. Whatever you feel, whatever you want, whatever you desire, that's the real you and you should just obey that thirst. It doesn't matter if it negatively affects anybody else. It doesn't matter if it negatively affects your health in the long term. As long as in the moment it makes you feel better, you should do it. We have a saying in our culture, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Think about that one for a minute. It's okay for me to cheat on my wife if I do it in Las Vegas because what happens there stays there. They don't care, so obey your basic urges. Obey your needs. Do what makes you feel good. Because if you do, no one will find out. And who is it really hurting anyway? We won't judge you, so you shouldn't judge yourself. See, this is the sinful nature that lives in us. This is selfishness personified, and we see it all around our culture. But think of the flip side of this. That's the world in which we live, but think about what Paul told us how we're to live our life. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your life. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. This is so important that we understand this. Your flesh, your sin nature, your selfishness is constantly fighting against the Holy Spirit inside of you. Paul tells us, don't obey your thirst. Don't just do it. In fact, we need to be discipled by the Word of God and by the Holy Spirit to learn what is good, not just what I feel like doing. This is what it means to be a disciple, friends. There are things in our flesh and by our nature that we think is good. But we have to bring our flesh and our nature under the lordship of Jesus Christ to say, no, God, what you say is good is what's good. Not the things that just in the moment I feel like doing. See, God's remedy for our selfishness is actually that we would learn selflessness. That we would learn selflessness. Seeking to bring out and bless and bring out the best in others. The best place for you and I to learn selflessness is in your families, 
in your church family, and in small groups. I believe with all my heart that one of the roles of the local church, especially your small group, is as a, as a training ground for you to learn how to live a selfless uh, life, for you to learn how to invest your life in other people, in other relationships. Because listen, right now in a big group meeting like this, nobody's asking anything of you. It's really easy to come into a big group meeting like this and, be, uh, and practice your selflessness, right? Because you're just basically, other than uh, sitting and listening, there's nothing else being asked of you. But you get into a small group and you start to get to know people. And maybe some of those people bother you. And maybe some of those people have expectations of you. And you start to grow in relationship. You start spending time with other people. And now it's not just about me anymore. It's not just about what I want. Now I'm actually having to practice these things. So let's get super practical here. I want to give you a few practices that you can uh, put into your life right now that will help you grow in selflessness. Okay? So here's the first one. You've done it today. I'm proud of you. The first practice is this. Show up. Show up. All of us, listen everybody, all of us are busy. I'm speaking right to some of you right now. All of us are busy. All of us have full schedules. All of us have lots going on in our life. Many of us are overcommitted, overstretched. And so here's the deal. Committing to come to church or committing to show up at your small group is an act of selflessness because it's not just about you. You understand? So much of our thinking is just about me. It's like we wake up in the morning and we take stock. We're like, how am I feeling today? Any reason I could stay home? Nope, I think. I... And then by the time you know, we check everything off, okay, I can, I can go today. I can go today. We need you here, and it's not just for your sake. We need you here because of the impact that you bring into this community. The same with your small group. Friends, I understand there are legitimate reasons for people to miss a meeting. I'm not trying to say to you that you have to show up when you've got COVID, okay? Hear me, don't show up. Stay home. But you do need to hear this because it's important. We've bought into our cultural lie where this is just something on our plate that's of the same level of importance as everything else on our plate. We need to raise our uh, desire and our view of the local church and of your small group. Small group is essential part of your life and your discipleship, and I think you should make a high-level commitment to it, not a second-rate level commitment. Here's the next thing that's really important. This is a hard one. You've got to accept new people into your life. Now, I said this is a hard one for a reason. It is really easy to get comfortable and not take the time and effort necessary to meet new people. But being open to accepting others is a real act of selflessness because it means, once again, you're putting the needs of other people ahead of your own. Opening your life to new people is hard. It's scary. But it's so essential if God's going to use you to be a blessing to others. Here's the next one. you got to listen to other people. These go hand in hand you got to actually listen to what they say. One of the greatest gifts of selflessness we can give in our culture is to recapture what it means to be good listeners because we are terrible at listening in our culture. 
We're terrible at this. When we're listening, we're really just trying to figure out as we're listening how we're going to respond or move on or how we can get this conversation to come to an end so that we can get out of there, right? But if we're going to be genuinely selfless in our listening, then we have to be willing to hear what people are saying. People are hurting. People need people to talk to. And it takes a selfless person to be willing to listen to the needs of others. Here's the last one in this category. The fourth one is we need to be willing to offer, to let God and the church and our small group to use our skills, abilities, talents. 1 Peter 4.10 says it like this, God has given each of you, who's he speaking to right now, by the way? Yeah, each of you, that's you guys, all of us. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. We at this church need your gifts. God has given each of you something different. And Peter reminds us of what the purpose of these gifts are. Use them well to make a bunch of money. Nope, it's not what he said. Use them well to build a big following or to gain influence. Nope, that's not what he said. He says, use them well to serve one another. We need your gift for the body of Christ to be complete, for the metaphor that Paul chose many different times in Scripture, for the body to function the way it was designed to function. We need every part to serve its purpose. We need every part. It's not just the job of the pastor or the teachers to complete the work of the ministry. The Bible teaches us that my job as a leader in this church is to train the saints, equipping you for the work of the ministry. Because we need each gift being used in unison with the other gifts in order to accomplish what God is calling us to. You are never going to find an example of a more selfless person than by reading through the Gospels at the story of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate example of what true selflessness looks like. Listen to this explanation from Paul in his letter to the Philippians. Philippians 2, 5-8. through You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So this is what real selflessness looks like. Jesus was humble. Jesus laid down his rights. Jesus came and he was willing to suffer on our behalf. Think of the difference, the contrast between selfishness and that. And that, friends, is our first one I wanted to talk about today in what really hurts our relationships or it builds them. The next ones will go a little quicker. I wanted to spend more time on that first one because I felt it's such an important thing for us to consider. Here's the next one. Number two, pride destroys relationships, but humility builds them up. The second thing that kills our relationships is pride. And pride shows up in so many different ways in our relationships. It shows up usually in the form of criticism. If you tend to be a person who's incredibly critical of other people, If you tend to be judgmental over other people, my guess is it's an issue with pride. If you tend to be overly competitive and you're always comparing yourself to others, that's probably also a pride problem. 
if you are stubborn and actually pride yourself in your stubbornness and find it difficult to say, I'm sorry, or you have struggles admitting when you're wrong, my guess is that has a root of pride. The problem with pride is it's self-deceiving. In fact, everybody else can see it when we can't. Proverbs 16, 18 that we know so well said pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. So what's the antidote to pride? Because we know how ugly pride can be. We know just how destructive pride is. The antidote is humility. 1 Peter 3.8 gives us, I, I actually, when I read this this week, 1 Peter 3.8, I was like, uh-oh, there's a sermon series here. Because in 1 Peter 3.8, there's five things <coughs> that I think are essential to a healthy relationship. Here's the five things. It says, finally, everyone must live in harmony, be sympathetic, love each other, have compassion, and be humble. Harmony, sympathy, love, compassion, and humility. This is such a wonderful list here of really five things that I believe are fruit that comes from a life that's transformed from the gospel and empowered by the Holy Spirit. If we are going to have genuine community here as a church, the only way we can do it is not by mustering it up on our own. Let me just tell you once again, if this is you're hearing me today and you think, man, I just need to work harder and do more, you're not hearing me correctly or I need to start speaking more clearly because you cannot muster up more humility. You can't just say, I think I'm going to be more humble today. You need the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You need the transformation that comes from the word of God. You need to be spending time in Jesus' presence to allow him to bring transformation to your life. If you want to have harmony, sympathy, love, compassion. I love this word harmony. This is one of my favorite words. <clears throat> I, I grew up a choir boy. I was a vocal performance major in college. Harmony is one of my favorite things. I was a tenor. I love harmony, okay? Harmony is, is different than unison. In unison, there's only one note being sung. But harmony is when the notes come alongside and they don't clash, but instead they build and support. Harmony is not looking that each of us would be the same. Harmony is that we're all bringing what we have to the table and working it together for the good of all. I love this word, harmony. And this is what we are called to do. It takes great humility because what we like to do is we like to be soloists, right? We like to be seen. We like to be heard. We want our contribution to be known. But if you've ever gone to a symphony, what's the best part of a symphony? It's the way that it all works together right? If you have one instrument stands out of the symphony, it's going to not be very good. If the flutist that day decided, you know what, today's my day to shine. I'm going to play this flute like I've never played it before. You'd be thinking, this isn't a very good symphony, right? But this is so often how we live our lives, friends. It's a beautiful thing to be in harmony with other people. Philippians 2, 3 through 5 says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, Thinking of others is better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude. 
that Christ Jesus had. How can you have the same attitude Christ Jesus had? The only way to have Christ Jesus' attitude is to know Christ Jesus. It's to spend time with him. It's to know his attitude. It's to have his spirit dwelling inside of you. It's to have his word guiding your life and your path. If you want to have the attitude of Jesus, then you've got to spend time with Jesus and allow his attitude to take hold in your life. Here's the third one. Insecurity destroys relationships but love builds them. Insecurity destroys relationship, but love builds them. Proverbs 29.25 says, Fearing people is a dangerous trap, but trusting the Lord means safety. See, here's what happens with our insecurities. If I start to think about your opinion and what it is that you're thinking of me right now, that can absolutely disable my life. See, because here's the problem with fear. What we are afraid of tends to control us or to manipulate us, especially when it comes to relationships. Your greatest fears in a relationship often then become something that's manipulating your relationship. And when you have those fears and insecurities in a relationship, it's intimacy that suffers. We end up having struggles with intimacy because there's always that fear that what if they, what if I? It's one of the reasons why cohabitating doesn't work. Because if there's always the fear that if I mess up, this could be it. It's also the reason why I say prenups are a bad idea. If there's always that risk on the table that if things don't go well, that you're going to just take off and leave, Intimacy is going to struggle. Why? Because of that insecurity that exists. See, we fear a lot of things in our relationships. One of the things I think we fear the most is exposure. We fear that somebody is going to find out what we're really like. You know that that's the oldest fear in relationships? It goes all the way back to Adam. Adam in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve sin, uh, starting in verse 9, it says, The Lord called the man, where are you? And Adam replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. He was exposed. He was vulnerable. He didn't want to be seen like that. That still exists in our relationships to this day. We want to hide away. We don't want people to really know what we're like. I think we are most scared of emotional nakedness. Not just physical nakedness, but emotional. What if somebody actually understands my fears? What if somebody finds out my faults? What if somebody gets to know my dark side? What if somebody sees the parts of myself that I don't want anyone else to see? We fear intimacy. We fear exposure because we're always afraid that if they really knew what I was really like, they'd be scared off. It'd run away, and that prevents intimacy in our relationships. I think there's an even greater fear than this one. It's the fear that comes. It's the real root of that fear. It's the fear of rejection. Again, we're afraid if they just found out, that would be the end. And all of us have been rejected at some point in our life. We know the hurt of rejection. So here's what we do. We hide ourselves away. We close ourselves off. We build walls around ourselves so that we say things like in our culture, I'm not going to let that happen to me again. Here's the problem with those walls that we build around ourselves. They become a prison. We end up building walls around our life and then we're stuck. 
Maybe somebody told you you were never going to amount to anything. Maybe somebody said you weren't good enough. Maybe you were married and that marriage came apart and there's all kinds of things that that person spoke to you that's caused you to build up barriers and build up walls. But friends, you need to understand this. If there's anybody that understands rejection, it's Jesus Christ. Remember, They nailed him to a cross. He experienced the ultimate rejection. He knows exactly how you feel. 1 John uh, John 1, 11 says he came to his own people and they rejected him. How would you like to show up to your own people and have them reject you? It gets worse than that. Mark 3, 20 through 21. One time Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. He was rejected by his people. He was rejected by his own family. John 7, verse 5, John tells us even his brothers didn't believe in him. His own family despised him and rejected him. Jesus understands rejection. But friends, as your pastor, I am begging you, do not allow past rejection to harden your heart. Do not build walls around your life and around yourself. This self-imposed prison that you are living in is really a grave because if you don't allow other people in, God wants to use others to help provide the healing. And that's such a terrifying thought for many of you. Because the source of your pain is the exact thing that God will use to bring healing in your life. See, for many, we've shut off all relationships. We've just shut them off. We've said, I'm not going to let that happen again. And so instead of living, you're just existing. You're just going through the motions of life. Because, friends, life takes some risks. It takes courage to build relationships. It takes courage to be loved and to love again. But I promise you, it's worth it. I have, in my job, I've had many people come into the office and say, what I'm about to tell you, I've never told anybody else. And when I hear somebody say that, I get excited. I get a sense of enthusiasm and joy because I know that person is about to have a breakthrough. I know that by sharing that thing that's kept them in their prison for so long, they're about to have a moment where they can see the power of that thing broken and begin to walk in freedom. We say at Celebrate Recovery all the time, you are only as sick as your secrets because once you break the power of that secret over your life, you can begin to walk forward into what God is calling you into. See, our insecurities, our fear destroys our relationships. It imprisons us. And we know the antidote to this. The antidote to this is love. 1 John 4, 16 through 18. We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love and all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment But we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels our fear. If we're afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. See, love 
takes our focus off of us and puts our focus on others. And it makes such a difference. Sometimes people ask me questions like, um, yesterday we had a, a service here where um, I, I, uh, I already told you I was a vocal performance major. And if you don't know, I used to lead worship here from the time I was a junior in high school until about, what, three years ago, I was the primary worship leader here. And so most of my ministry life, 20 plus years have been in singing. And people would often ask, do you get nervous about singing in front of people? Or now they say, do you get nervous when you preach uh, to a group? And I'll say, yeah, absolutely I do. But do you know what changes? See, I get nervous if I'm thinking about what you're all thinking of me. What makes me nervous is to think like, uh, are they looking at my weird bald head, right? Are they looking at, is my, is my collar really wrinkly today, right? I get nervous when I think about things like that. But you know what breaks that nervousness? Is when I start thinking about how much I love you. When I start thinking about how much I desire God's blessing in your life. When I start thinking about how much I desire to see you fruitful and healthy and walking in freedom, that changes everything because it takes the perspective off of me and puts it on to you. It's really, I believe, the secret to overcoming your fears in front of other people is to get your focus off of you and off of what they might be thinking and get your focus on the people around you. Friends, I believe with all my heart that it is God's desire to heal and to help and to restore and to grant you new, deeper, fuller, more life-sustaining relationships. I believe that he has that in your future. But again, this is a journey. It's not something that happens overnight. You don't suddenly meet someone uh, like in the movie and say, did we just become best friends? Because the reality is to become someone's best friend, to really invest yourself in each other's life takes time. It's a lifetime process. It's why I started earlier by saying one of the best ways you can do this is by showing up. We got to give God the opportunity to help join our hearts with other people. It's a real work of love to be willing to allow God to do that work. Here's the next one, the last one, number four. Resentment destroys relationship, but forgiveness builds them. Resentment destroys relationships, but forgiveness builds them. Listen, friends, we all blow it, don't we? Anyone want to share a testimony? We all blow it. We all mess up. All of us are sinners. The Bible says that each of us have sinned. All of us are sinners. All of us mess up. All of us regularly. I love in, I said, quoted it earlier, an amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. That's me. Anyone else, right? That's who we are. We mess up. We need help. We need a savior. We don't measure up to our own standards, let alone the standards of others. We're imperfect. We're messed up. And the fact that if we understand this, it's so important. Because what's more important is what we are going to do. You're going to face hurts in your life, right? Anyone? You're going to face hurts. So what do you do with those hurts? What are you going to do with those hurts? Are you going to allow God to make you better? Or are you going to become bitter? Are you going to let God heal your hurts, take your hurts, or are you going to let them fester? Are you going to sit in them? Are you going to stew over them? Or are you going to allow God to bring you through the process of healing? Often, it's not the big things in life that make us resentful. 
It's the accumulative effect of all of the other stuff, right? It adds up one after another after another until resentment builds in our life. It's like that straw that finally breaks the camel's back. We get irritated and those irritations, I sit in my office and do marriage counseling and people say, well, I can't put my finger on one thing specifically, but it's this totality of all of this stuff that builds up over time and resentment sets in. Hebrews 12, 15 says, Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. See, resentments and bitterness is poison in your life. It will make you spiritually sick. They'll make you physically sick. They'll make you emotionally sick. Bitterness is poison to your life. And resentment allows the devil to have a beachhead in your life. From there, he'll make attacks constantly into you. By by picking that scab, by poking that wound, he'll find ways to keep you stuck, keep you in that prison we talked about a minute ago. Question is, what's the antidote to this? Well, it's forgiveness. Why should we forgive other people. Now, I'm going to give you some real practical reasons here that we should forgive other people, okay? Luke 17 says this. Here's the first one. And this is true parenting style. Ready? Here's the first reason you should forgive other people. Because Jesus says so. Okay? Jesus says so. When my kids, sometimes you just, because he says so. Luke 17, 3 through 4. Watch yourself. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. Then if there is repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day and each time turns again and asks forgiveness, you must forgive. Here's the second reason. Second reason, because you've been forgiven by God. Ephesians 4.32 says, Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Jesus Christ, has forgiven you. Here's the third reason. You're going to need more forgiveness someday in the future, so you better forgive others. Matthew 6, 14 through 15. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Listen, let's clear this up. When we're talking about forgiveness, we are not talking about making excuses for what the other person did to you. We can recognize sin as sin. We can call sin, sin. We don't have to pretend it didn't hurt. We don't have to minimize the hurt. We don't have to try to convince ourselves that what they did was no big deal. It was a big deal. Forgiveness is us letting go of the pain and letting go of the right to someday get even. Now, why would we want to do that? Well, for your own sake. Because if you continue to live holding on to this bitterness and holding on to this hurt, you are poisoning yourself and your life. And some of you who are here today have allowed a hurt from another person to poison you and cripple you from being able to move into what God has for your life. Forgiveness is the only way that you can can begin to step forward out of that hurt. Band, you can come back up. Listen, resentment turns our hearts into a desert. Let me explain that. Resentment dries us up emotionally. 
so that you don't have anything to give to anyone else because you're so dry, you're so relationship weary, you've sat in so much hurt and so much resentment that you can't, you don't have anything to offer or give to others. Friends, forgiveness is the only way out. I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you, friends, if you are holding bitterness and resentment, if you're holding in you today that desire to get even, if you're holding in you today that desire to hold on to the hurt because what that person did to you was so bad that you just want them to suffer a little while longer, the only way you can move forward is today to offer that person forgiveness. Forgiveness. 